Summer's a time, a lot of times people go on road trips. I talked to a family after the first service, uh, four kids drove from South Carolina here. They're going to uh, Colorado after this and, and back. That's a lot of time in a car with a kid. Anyone ever been in a car with a kid for more than an hour? All right. With, how about with a talker, a kid who was a talker for more than an hour? All right. If you're in a car with a kid for more than an hour and they're able to talk, you're almost guaranteed to have them ask a question that is the theme of, of the series we've been in. That question is, are we there yet? How many have heard that at least once in your lifetime, maybe even spoken it? Are we there yet? That, that's the name of the series that's actually wrapping up today. This is part five in a five-part teaching series, and it's a series that's based on a bold promise by Jesus of Nazareth. We have a bold promise that was recorded in his words, this bold promise that not only had he come, but he promised he's coming back. Jesus of Nazareth promised that. He said, I'm coming back. If you want to write this down in your notes, there's a place to do so on your green sheets. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples that he'd return. And we have this account in the book of Acts where Jesus ascended into heaven. And right after all the disciples, well, actually during the time when the disciples are up there looking like this, you know, just watching this, this unbelievable sight, it says that two men appeared standing alongside them. And these men said, this Jesus who you just saw ascend into heaven, he will return in the same way. So right after Jesus left, there's a confirmation of that promise. And then when the Holy Spirit fell on these people, these, these disciples who had heard these things, had seen these things, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They're filled with new wisdom and boldness and power. They start telling everyone about this promise. They can't shut up about it. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you see time and time and time again, they, they're talking about this promise, this idea that the king is going to return. It is not a marginal teaching. This is not just something that you find a cryptic reference to in the most cryptic of our texts, the book of Revelation. Take a look at the New Testament. It's everywhere. Um, I'm not the only one saying this. Here's what a scholar wrote in one of my sources I was looking at. Uh, this man wrote, every book of the New Testament points to the return of Christ and urges us to live in a way where we're always going to be ready for that return. All right, so proclamations of this blessed hope didn't end with Jesus. They didn't end with his original disciples. They continued on. Disciples of the disciples began talking about these things. How do we know that? We see it in the very early Christian proclamations. Let me show you something up on the, tech, on the screens here that many of you have probably seen before. It's in a lot of liturgies in the Lutheran church and other churches. I remember saying this as a kid before we would have communion together. This is actually an ancient proclamation of faith that goes way, way back, hundreds and hundreds of years. Could you read it with me? Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. People have been proclaiming that in all kinds of different language for years and years and years. How many of you have ever proclaimed this in a church before this time? Okay, so, so yeah, this goes back to ancient times. And as the disciples of disciples started to spread and move beyond house churches, and when there was no longer an, an, a direct apostle to be able to oversee that church, they began to create these things called creeds to just say, hey, let's have some alignment here. If they don't line up with this creed, they're not really authorized by us. And so we see in the early creeds, the second coming is in the early creeds. This is from what's called the Nicene Creed. It says this, Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and this kingdom will have no end. 
All this to say the doctrine of the second coming isn't just something that crazy people on street corners are yelling about. This isn't something that's just, that's just found in a marginalized book in a little tiny obscure passage. It has been from the beginning part of the Christian faith. It's central to our doctrine. And for the last four weeks, we've been asking a question about this doctrine that children of God have been asking for 2,000 years. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we getting close to that glorious day when Jesus returns? Now, as always, Mike Dvorak did an outstanding job with our, our theme graphic. If you want to either pull out your bulletin and take a look at it or take a look at here at the screens, he did a great job with this graphic. He's so creative. Um, it captures, this graphic captures the idea that humanity is heading somewhere that there's a destination that we're going towards. And also in this graphic, it's got this ominous apocalyptic tone that captures this will be a time of trial and tribulation. It has been for Christians throughout the years. It will continue to be as we near that day. Christians throughout history have been waiting expectantly for Jesus to come back, for this age to end, for oppression and injustice to end for wars and lawlessness to end, for lies and deception to end, for hunger and poverty and pain and suffering to end, for death itself to be no more. Now, make no mistake, the decisive battle was already won on the cross. But there's still this coming yet to come. A day is coming when Jesus will return and all shall be as it should be. And as we close out this series, the question we're going to take on head on today is this. Why are we still waiting? Why? Why are we still waiting? Jesus made this promise about 2,000 years ago. Why are we still waiting? Why hasn't he returned yet? Well, in this series, as we've looked for answers, as we always do, as our custom is here, we've looked to the Word. Because you can find all kinds of speculation. What we've tried to do is let's go to the source material, capital S. Let's go to the documents that have been vetted, that have been affirmed, that have been authorized by the disciples, you know, themselves. Let's take a look at those. And if we look at the Holy Scripture, I'm only aware of one book in the Bible that takes this question head on that directly responds to this question, are, why are we still waiting? And it comes to us from a disciple of Jesus named Peter. Uh, you may have heard of him, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He's a fisherman who left his nets to follow Jesus. We have two letters from him in our Bible, and let's look at those today. Let's start with 2 Peter. We're actually going to look towards the end of his second letter, at least to start here. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. I want to let you know, too, um, we, we believe in the Bible so much here that we give away free copies. So if you, on your way out, if you want to grab one from that table or if you go out the other door, please grab a Bible. It's there as a gift for you today. All right, here we go. Second Peter, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Peter writes this. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come 
And what do scoffers do? They're scoffing. It's what they do. So scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they're going to say, so where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and this earth was formed. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So pause. What Peter's doing here is he's reminding the faithful. He's saying, God's word is powerful. It's how everything was formed. Don't forget that. If he promises something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then he goes on, 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Now, Peter believed in the authority of Scripture. How do I know that? He's quoting it here. He didn't just make up this stuff about thousand days like a, a, like a, a, or a day is like a thousand years. That's Psalm 90, verse 4. You can look that up. He's quoting scripture here. And as Peter responds to the scoffers of his day, he stands firm on the scripture. Culture may believe one thing, but he's going to stand firm on the scripture. And he reminds the faithful in this situation that God's perspective on time is very different than our own. Our own perspective on time is so limited. God's isn't. And so God sees time very, very different. And I would even argue experiences time very, very different. God has his reasons for being patient. There's several of them. Some of them kind of come out, like with Jesus' teaching. He's like, first the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, then the end will come. So you see some of these reasons. But Peter straight up answers the question. Here's one of them. Here's one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't come back. He says one of the reasons is because he's patient and he wants everyone to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. This is good news. Please write this down. God's patience requires an opportunity for people to repent, more people. I've commented before in, um, in this room, actually just an hour ago, um, that the, the fact that Jesus, if Jesus had returned when I was in my 20s, you know, when we were, I'm like, come back, God. If he had returned to my 20s, I wouldn't experience eternity with my kids, right? God wants more people to come into the family. He wants more people. One of the reasons that God has waited for his return, he waited for you so that you wouldn't just be born, but you would have a chance to be born again, born again. As I was rereading First and Second Peter this week, I noticed something about born again that I'd never noticed before. This is from his first letter, First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Look what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be what? Born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. For 46 years, I've missed this. I I remember seeing born again in John's gospel. I forgot that Peter also picked up on the language, which makes sense because Peter probably heard Jesus say it, right? Do the, it's not enough to just be born. We must be born again. 
Do the scriptures provide blessed hope for those who are walking in disobedience? I don't see it. Do the scriptures provide blessed hope for those who are living a lukewarm life? The book of Revelation says otherwise. And what God is doing, he's being patient. He's giving us an opportunity to be born again, to repent, to turn from the other ways to God. Now, you may have noticed when it comes to repentance here that Bob is back. Now, you may have not known it was Bob with the clever disguise, but this is our Bob. He shows up at our church every once in a while, and he takes on different roles. Today, he's taking on the iconic role, the iconic role of the sidewalk prophet, all right? And there's a sign on there, and if you're listening to the podcast, could you guys yell out what the sign says around his neck? What does it say? Repent and believe. So we got Bob dressed like the sidewalk prophet, and he's got a sign around his neck that says, repent and believe. Well, what's he doing, right? What is he doing saying something so offensive? You know, as a believer in Christ, how can we just stand there and let this guy proclaim a message that just seems so judgmental and so against everything that the loving, caring Jesus came to say? Where he got this idea, this crazy idea? To give a message like repent and believe? He got it from Jesus. If you have your Bibles, look up Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark, in Mark's gospel, when Mark records the words of Jesus and the appearance of Jesus, do you know what the first thing is that Mark has Jesus saying? Let's put it up on the screens. Here it is. In context, take a look. And again, I, I fact check me on this. Please look it up. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then what does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, for the record, does our delivery of the good news matter? Like how we present it? Yes. You can take the very words of Jesus and say them in a way that does more harm than good. You can say the very words of God in a way that is not God-honoring. Humility is important. Tact is important. Context is important. So for the record, all of that is important. But it's also important to speak the truth in love. And the truth is that Jesus of Nazareth himself says, repent and believe. All right, let's get back on point. Back to 2 Peter. So we've been jumping around a bit. Let's go back where we left off. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. We read this before, but just to bring us back where we're going. He is patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is alignment. Repentance is turning from sin to God. Repentance is not just a head thing. Repentance is not just a words thing. Repentance isn't just a prayer thing. Repentance is a response thing. It's a turning from what was wrong to what is right. And every day is an opportunity for more and more people to repent and believe that's why God has been, in part, patient, so that when he returns, he'll find us forgiven and faithful. 
This is a big deal. This meant so much to Jesus and his followers. I encourage you to write this down. Jesus instilled a sense of urgency in Peter when it comes to this. This wasn't just a casual teaching. If you get around to it, tell them to repent and believe. There's an urgency that Jesus instilled in Peter. Take a look at this. When we, when we read Jesus' own words, we saw that he wanted his disciples to be ready and alert. Those were his words. You know, he, ready and alert. Be awake. Keep watch. And Peter passes along his master's urgency in his own letter, jumping up or picking up with verse 10. But the day of the Lord, it's going to come like what? A thief. It comes like a thief. The heavens are going to disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Well, where did Peter get this thief analogy? Got it from Jesus. We looked at it in week one of the series. He's quoting Jesus. I found this quote in one of my resources about this urgency. The reason that Jesus did this was surely intentional. He set forth a tension between the signs that precede his coming and the suddenness of his coming so that people would live every moment in the light of the promise of his coming. Not knowing the day or the hour when he'll, when he'll come again, we're to live every moment to the fullness. Here's how N.T. Wright puts it. He puts it like this. What appears to us in our impatient moments as God's delay is in fact God's moment of fresh vocation. Isn't that good? There are tasks to do in the meantime. Now, if we would have had more time this morning, what I would have done is just started in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, because this is exactly what he does. He addresses this quote by N.T. right here. They're, they're, first and Second Peter are really about our life what does it mean to live in light of God's return? It's really about that. It's about living a holy, God-honoring life. Here's what you do, because we have tasks to do that are so important. Well, as I was thinking about the end times, and I was thinking about this idea, this idea of urgency that Jesus conveyed, I had a, a BFO. I haven't talked about BFOs for a long time. Um, used to use the term more than I do now. What is a BFO? Do anyone remember? Blinding flash of the obvious. I had this blinding flash of the obvious. Right? We're thinking about the end times. You've got to be ready for the end times, right? You've got to be ready. Well, you, you, your day will most likely catch you by surprise. That was the reminder I had. Your day will most likely catch you by surprise. Here's what I mean by that. Every generation from the time of Jesus has already experienced a judgment day of sorts. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying all this is metaphysical. There is going to be a day when Jesus returns, a glorious day, right? I'm not saying that, oh, that's already experienced in this different form. There's going to be that day. What I'm also saying is your day might come quicker where you encounter the resurrected Christ. And it's happened for every generation since Jesus. In a very real sense, what Jesus has already said about this has come to pass for billions of people. There have been two sleeping in one bed, and one was taken in the night. And there have been two who were doing life together, and one was tragically taken. And on that day, that person came before the resurrected Christ. Every generation that's gone before us and died Every person who's gone before us and died from the time of Jesus' first advent until now has encountered the resurrected Christ, and most of them were caught by surprise. Isn't that true? Most were caught by surprise, just as Jesus said. When your day comes, and it will come, 
like a thief in the night for most of us, will you be ready? When your day comes, will you be found on that day forgiven and faithful? Well, Jesus showed us what that looks like, and his followers showed us what that looks like. Peter showed us what that looks like. Here's how Peter puts it. Second Peter, back to our text, picking up with, on chapter 3, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Here, he's just going to tell us straight up. This is happening. You want to be forgiven and faithful. Here's what it looks like. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And speed, it's coming. Oh, would love to dive into that. Just don't have time. Speed, it's coming. In keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In his second letter, Peter here circles back to something that was in his first letter. He's circling back to something that he wrote in his first letter. Here's what he wrote in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So he says it's written. He's got quotes. What do you think he's quoting? He's quoting scripture. He's quoting of all books, Leviticus. He's quoting Leviticus 11.44. He loves to quote scripture. Today's scoffers love to mock Leviticus. Did Peter mock Leviticus? No, he quotes it. He quotes it. Be holy because I'm holy. Both the book of Leviticus and both of Peter's letters call us to live holy lives. What is holy? The word holy means to be set apart as sacred. The word holy means to convey a sense of the divine. To be holy means to be consecrated for God's will or his use. To be holy is to be spiritually whole and pure. All right, this is letter one and letter two. He reinforces this. Okay, let's go back to 2 Peter. Pick up with verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Does that describe you? As much as it depends on you through the help and the work of the Holy Spirit, are you trying to live spotless, blameless lives? Are you at peace with God? Or are you living a different way? Peter says something in chapter 1 of his letter that I want to dive deep into someday. Here's what he admonishes followers of Jesus to do. So now, um, this is still 2 Peter, but it's verse, chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. He admonishes us to do this. He says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's common ground here. In, in, in um, theological language, we, we have what's called the doctrine of election. There's also what people call making a decision for Christ. There's common ground right here, regardless of which of these you embrace, if you're a decision person or election person. There's common ground here. How do you know if your decision is sure? Practice these qualities. How do you know if your election is sure? Practice these qualities. 
Pursue holiness. Spread the good news that God has graciously offered a repentance that leads to life. These are the behaviors of sincere decision makers. These are the behaviors of the elect. Sorry to go off on the tangent. Those who know theology, that you know what we're talking about there. In, in, in Peter's closing remarks, he says something that is especially relevant for our day. I want everyone to tune in on this one. In Peter's closing remarks, he says something especially relevant, relevant for us today. Picking up with verse 15. So we're going back to where we left off. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the what? Other scriptures, remember that, to their own destruction. Please leave this scripture on the screen for just a minute. I want to show you something here. Jesus himself warned that in the last days there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be false teachers. Jesus warned us about that. And here Peter warns against something that, that evidently there are pastors and bloggers and scoffers that are attempting to do again. I've heard so many people talking about this. They're minimizing the teachings of Paul. It's almost like there's this little movement out there trying to minimize the teachings of Paul to put Paul's words up and against Jesus. Well, here's what Paul said, but here's what Jesus says. And there's no but. There's an end, right? They're putting them up against the other, others. Peter wrote these words that we just looked at, right? Peter wrote these words. Peter was at the center of Jesus' inner circle. Peter is the one who Jesus himself appointed to lead his sheep. Is there a pastor or blogger or scoffer alive today who knows Jesus better than Peter did? No. And what does Peter say about Paul's letter? He says their scripture. Their scripture. Paul's letters are scripture. Now you could say, oh, this is a translation thing. When he said scripture, he didn't really mean scripture like we believe it today. No, he meant scripture like we believe it today. Here's one place you can find the ESV study Bible says this. They take the Greek and they said, this is not a mistranslation. Here's the quote. The Greek word that's translated here as scripture occurs 51 times in the New Testament. Every time. It refers to Old Testament scripture and not any other writings. The only exceptions to this are here where he says Paul's words are scripture and in 1 Timothy 5.18 where he does the same. Some New Testament writings are also included. This indicates the New Testament books written or authorized by Christ's apostles were recognized at a very early date to be God's word. Now, Peter admits that Paul's writings are hard to understand. And may I add, they're very countercultural too. But I also want to state, as Peter does, that it's going to be ignorant and unstable people that will distort them as they do the other scriptures, and they do that to their own destruction. Picking up with verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on guard, be on guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless, of the lawless, and fall away from your secure position. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him. Be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, it's remarkable that Peter's saying these things because of all people, Peter, you would have thought, this guy is not a candidate to be among the forgiven and faithful. If you followed his life early on, you'd be like, man, this guy's not tracking the right way, not tracking the right way, not finishing strong. This is Peter who had such a hard time understanding Jesus' teaching. This is Peter who said something so stupid that Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. This is Peter who cut off a guy's ear with a sword. I don't think he was swinging for the ear. Hold still. You know, he was swinging at the guy's head, right? This is Peter who straight up denied that he even knew Jesus three times in the same night. That's Peter. And he so understood the grace of God that he was able to look forward for that blessed day. And good thing he did because his day came before the second coming. Peter the evidence points to Peter writing this letter from Rome. While he was writing this letter, he's under the leadership of the emperor Nero. When fire broke out, and I think it was year 64 AD, right around then, when fire broke out in Rome, who did Nero blame for the fire? He blamed the Christians. And as a result, as this letter was being delivered right around that time, you know who was executed? Peter. His day came like a thief in the night. And on that day, it was a glorious day because Jesus' words were true. And on that day, Peter was with his Savior in paradise. In paradise. If Peter can be found forgiven and faithful on his day, if Paul, he was an accessory to martyr, and he could be found forgiven and faithful on his day. If Martha, who was so caught up in her work that she missed the moment when Jesus was literally there, if she could be found forgiven and faithful on her day, if Mary Magdalene, who was possessed by not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven demons, if she could be found forgiven and faithful on her day, if that's the case, there is a blessed hope for every person in this room who will repent and believe. I wish Bob was able to turn around. If he would, he'd go, repent and believe. Your day, your day may come on the day when the trumpet sounds. Your day may come when your heartbeat monitor flatlines, but your day will come. And on that day, will you be found forgiven and faithful. That's the last thing I encourage you to write in your notes as we wrap up here today. When your day arrives, will you be found forgiven and faithful? Well, in this series, we've avoided a whole lot of stuff, not because we're afraid of it, but we've avoided a whole lot of the speculation. We avoided it because all at the end of the day, all we can say is here's one view, here's another view. That's all we can do. We've avoided the speculation, avoided the speculation about Gog and Magog, we haven't discussed whether John's revelation was referring to real locusts or helicopters. There are people that debate that. We didn't debate that. We haven't taken a stand on premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism. With the short time we've had, we've tried to focus on the main things. This is the main thing. On your day, will you be found forgiven and faithful?
Let's pray to that end as we close this series. God, that's what it comes down to. And we pray for your spirit to come right now and descend upon us as a church and as individuals. Corporately, Father, may you tell us together as a church, if we, not if, tell us what is not in alignment with your will and your ways, and may we be eager to repent of anything, not in words, not in prayer, but, but in, in a true turning in everything, word and prayer and actions. Father, as individuals, fall on us now and show us what isn't in alignment. And right here, right now, may we offer everything to you. May we come before you and say, God, make us holy. Only you can forgive us. And only you can give me the power to change, so Lord, do it. I yield my life willingly to you. I yield my future. I yield my, my relationships. I yield possessions. I yield everything, God. I yield it all to you, knowing that your way is good and your way is right. And when you return and make all things right, oh, what a glorious day that'll be. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.